Good morning. Let me say thank you for your appreciation. Um, I know you appreciate me, and I know you appreciate Pastor Dave and Johan. Uh, nothing shows your appreciation more than uh, your believing in and buying into the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. My father used to say to me, he'd say, when I'd give him a gift, he'd say something like, son, I don't want a gift from you, I just want you to be a good boy. I understand now as a parent what, what he desired. And I say that to you, I, I thank you for your gift. I don't know what it is, it could be a lump of coal. Um, but assuming that it's not, thank you for that. But the appreciation that all of us and all of your leaders desire is to show by your love for one another. It's what Jesus wanted. He said, by this one thing, the whole world will know you're my disciples, that you've learned from me. What? That you love one another. That's how every good shepherd, every parent wants his people to live, is to love one another. And so uh, I say thank you, and also I issue a challenge. The London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is a summary theological statement of our belief, says in Article 2, Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and His righteousness alone, is the alone instrument of justification. Yet is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but works by love. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, you've impressed upon me this week this very real truth that what I say with my mouth about my love for you, what I proclaim from the pulpit about my love from you, is so much chaff if it is not accompanied by real works. But you have also impressed upon me, and I pray that I might impress that upon this church today, that those works, those good deeds that we do in this life, the refraining from sin and the promotion of love, the promotion of good, that all of those things are the result of being forgiven, that they come with our forgiveness, that they come with our new creation status, that they are the real effects of being really justified before you, and that you have not saved us merely in word only, but that you have saved us to good works. Your word proclaims that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith and this not of ourselves, not that we should boast so that no one may boast, but it is a gift from God and that you, Lord, are the one who has created in us, made us new creations to do good works which you prepared in advance for us to do. Lord, help us to grasp this morning that justification is not the end of our salvation. It is the only thing that saves us, but it comes with a new creation. As the burden falls off, Lord, let us remember that we now have been given a lighter, a lighter load, but that the pilgrimage has begun. And that we are seeking to be holy and glorify you in this journey in the remainder of this life. I just pray that you would impress this truth upon me and upon this congregation this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most unfortunate misunderstandings uh, that I would say has happened, really, uh, it's been present in the church from as early as the Apostle Paul. Uh, when Paul was proclaiming the gospel of salvation by 
faith alone or the salvation, the justification by faith alone, there were some who were slanderously reporting that Paul was teaching an easy believism. That is to say that if you just believe this with your head, that's good enough and you're saved. Now, a lot of people believe that. A lot of people will say, yes, I'm a Christian. And you ask them, well, okay, well, yeah, when did you come to know Christ? Why? And they'll tell you, well, I believe in God. It's always important to remember that very important verse in James 2 that says that that's the faith of demons. That the faith of demons is a simple mere intellectual assent. And we think that as long as we have the right thought about God, that that makes us justified. Uh, Edwina, where are you Edwina? The great Saint Edwina, sitting next to Saint Pauline of course. Oh gosh, this could get really long. Everybody's a saint here. But Edwina has taken, uh, she's adopted our dog for the next seven months. And we have to walk him to keep him, he's, he's high energy. And we have to walk him to keep him relaxed in our home because her home is beautiful and our home wasn't. So we didn't care. So we, we, we try and walk him every day to get him to relax by the time he gets home. And Edwina says he just goes and sleeps. So we're thanking God for that. So we take him on a three-mile walk. And as we take him on this three-mile walk, there are these beautiful, beautiful landscape homes and beautiful landscaped walls, beautiful oak groves, uh, well-manicured gardens, so beautiful. And I remember as I was jogging yesterday, walking, um, (laughs) yesterday, I had the thought, this could not, there's no way that this could have happened on accident. And you say, because of the foliage? No, because of the subduing of the earth. It's that we, God's creatures, actually take his earth and subdue it. We we make it look beautiful. And I was just kind of marinating on that thought as I was jogging that, and hopefully that that person who is driving fast won't run me over. But I was thinking about that thought that this could not have happened by accident. I was firmly committed to the intellectual belief that there is a God, but that is not enough not enough that's actually not what God is after to say that you are justified that you are forgiven that you are saved Martin Luther a monk in the middle or in the medieval uh, times was a man who really grasped the reality of hell unfortunately today We have lost that reality of hell, the idea of an eternal punishment, an eternal conscious punishment. And we're not afraid. But the reason why we sit here today in America, some 500 years after, we just celebrated the 501st anniversary of the 95 Theses, which were nailed on the north door of the Wittenberg Cathedral in the city church, there on October 31st, 1517. That because of that man's understanding that there really was a really was and is a hell that is waiting for unjustified sinners, because of that, and the answer to the question being by faith alone, we live in the United States of America because there were people who took that conviction seriously. And we need to restate it afresh 501 years later because somehow today we have lost the idea that being a Christian is more than simply saying I have an intellectual belief in God. I mean, one of the most hair-raising things for me makes my teeth grind is when I watch these, you know, any of them when I do watch them, but these shows, these award uh, ceremonies like the Oscars or... uh, Um, you know, the Grammys or the Emmys or the Billboard music. And, uh, you know, they walk up to the microphone and the first thing they want to do is they want to thank God. I want to thank God. Awesome. You know, I think God, you should give him the praise and honor. Thank God for what? That pornographic album you just put out? What they're really trying to do is they're trying to convince the world and they're trying really to convince themselves That so long as they mention God's name or give him glory for their work, their sinful work, that they're somehow saved. In the book, 
the Christian classic, Pilgrim's Progress, which is an allegory of the Christian life, John Bunyan tells of a protagonist named Christian. And in the early stages of the book, Christian has left the city of destruction and he's journeyed only a little while carrying a great burden on his back. The burden, which is sin, is heavy and it works to make, make pilgrims or Christians pilgrimage to the holy Mount Zion an impossible task. What's so interesting about this story in the analogy of the Christian life, the allegory of the Christian life, I should say, is that when Christian leaves the city of destruction, he still has some time in between the path, the real path of salvation, and the leaving of the city of destruction. And for after he leaves the world, after he knows that he's got to leave his family behind, he's got to leave this city of destruction because after all this thing is going to be destroyed and he knows he's got to get away, he carries this burden of sin for some time. And it's heavy. So much so that he falls into the pond of despair and it seeks to drown him. He's only pulled out by someone outside who is called help and is sent to the interpreter's house to learn more about his salvation and to begin the pathway of real, real Christian pilgrimage. I want to just read the beginning of the third part in this passage. Bunyan writes, Oh, in my dream, the highway on which Christian was to travel was fenced in on both sides with a wall called salvation. The burdened Christian ran up this way with great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran like this until he came to a place where the road climbed up a small hill. At the top of the hill stood a cross. And a little below at the bottom was a stone tomb. In my dream, just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosened from his shoulders and fell off of his back. It tumbled and continued to do so down the hill until it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell inside and was seen no more. Christian was so glad and overjoyed. And in his excitement, he said... He has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. He stood still for a while and looked with astonishment at the cross. It surprised him that the sight of the cross released him of his burden. He looked and he looked again as tears ran down his cheeks. And now as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones approached him and greeted him with, Peace be to thee. The first shining one said to him, Your sins are forgiven. All sins. Past, present, future. The first message of the gospel is that your sins are forgiven in Christ alone. But it is merely the first. There is more to the message. The second stripped Christian of his rags, then clothed him with a complete change of clothes. The second aspect of our salvation is not simply that we've been forgiven, but that we've been, listen, crucial word today, recreated, reborn. If any man, woman or child, be in Christ, he, she, is a new Creation. Behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. Your forgiveness of sins is always accompanied, true forgiveness of sins is always accompanied with a new creation status. 
a new life in Christ, a rebirth, being born again. And if your faith, your intellectual faith, has not produced new creation status, you are not saved. Because it is an absolute that if you are in Christ, behold, that means look at intently, the old life has died and the new life has come. It's what we symbolize in baptism. Buried in the likeness of Christ's death. It's what's symbolized here. The old sins fall down into the tomb and they are seen no more. But this is the beginning of the pilgrimage to heaven. The beginning of the rest of your life as a Christian. And then a third one. A third shining one. It says here placed a mark on Christian's forehead and gave him a scroll with a seal upon it. The third shining one said, look on this as you run and deliver it when you arrive at the gate of the celestial city. With that, the shining ones went their way. Christian jumped for joy, leaping into the air three times and went on his way singing, Thus far did I come burdened with my sin. No one could ease the grief that was in. I, until I came here, what a place this is. Is this place the beginning of my blessedness? Is this the place the burden fell from my back? Is this the place where the strings that bound it to me broke? Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man who there was put to shame for me. I saw in my dream that Christian continued on his way until he came to the bottom of the hill. My dad used to say, son, beware of a pat on the back because it's usually accompanied by a swift kick in the butt. You're sold a bill of goods too many times by false teachers. That if you come to Christ, your life is going to be perfect. And then when it's imperfect, it's because you lack faith. But listen to me, Christian. When you jump and you praise, there is a bottom of the hill. And you say, well then, does that mean I'm not saved? No, it is the beginning of the life. I find it very interesting that Bunyan began the bottom of the hill, the journey with Christian being surrounded by other so-called pilgrims. He said, I saw in my dream that he had come to the bottom of a hill. There he saw three men fast asleep next to the road with changed chains attached to their heels. The name of the first was simple, that means stupid. The second was sloth, that means lazy. And the third was called presumption, that means foolish. And when Christians saw these three pilgrims, note that word pilgrim. It means someone who is religious. Oh yeah, I lo- every time I meet with, you know... I meet with young men and young girls and I ask them, they tell me about their boyfriend or their girlfriend that they're dating and I ask him, is so-and-so a Christian? Oh, yeah, 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 what evidence is there? Well, he says he is. Yeah, but is he like one of these chained pilgrims who has tried to begin the walk but has never left the bottom of the hill? He is a pilgrim, but he is not the Christian. Oh, he's seeking, he's journeying. The Bible says that no man seeks after God, no, not one. He's looking for God. She's looking for God. But the scripture denies that anyone looks for God. Except for the person whose sins have been forgiven. When Christian sees these three, 
And he says they sees them sleeping on the ground. And he walks over to them hoping he might be able to awaken them. He said you are like those who sleep on the top of a mast. For the Dead Sea is under you, a gulf that has no bottom. So wake up and get moving. If you are willing, I will help you get your shackles off. This is the church. This is the pleading of a Christian who sees other people who call themselves Christians to wake up and realize that their faith has no assurance while they are shackled to the entrance of the path of salvation. They've never moved. They've never taken a single step in their Christian journey except for the fact that they prayed a prayer. You say you believe in God, says James. Good, that's as much as the demons believe. And they shudder at the thought. That is that they believe even more than you might believe. But real pilgrims begin the walk of salvation. He says, wake up, get moving. If you're willing, I'll help you get your shackles off. That's what the church is supposed to do. He also told them, if he who goes about like a roaring lion comes by, you will certainly become a prey to his teeth. With that, they glanced at him and they replied like this. Simple said, I see no danger. Simple stupid. Why? Because simple shows that he doesn't know the word of God. He's simple. He, he thinks that his faith is simply based upon a belief in the heart and not a growing in the knowledge of the word of God, which warns that our adversary, the devil, roams the earth roaring like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. And if you know anything about predators, they devour the weakest of the flock. I was watching last night the, the power. I, I don't know. I get on these YouTube binges like where all of a sudden I'm like, I wanted to watch how to make an end grain cutting board. And at the end of it, I'm watching two grizzly bears fighting. You all know what I'm talking about. And I just saw the power of these two lions. These two lions were fighting and one had ripped the jaw out from underneath the, 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 the other one. It was graphic. Don't you fear Satan? I, I, and, I, and I mean, I mean the way that the Bible tells us Satan comes to us. As an angel of light. Satan doesn't jump out of the closet at night and go, booga, booga, booga. There's no way to get followers. I can tell you my daughter and my son would not be followers of Satan if he did that. Ah! While you all were worrying about Halloween last week and not celebrating trick-or-treating, you stayed home and allowed Netflix to be your angel of light and to devour your mind as you amuse. Do you know what the word amuse means? It means not to think and let someone else think for you. Can you spot Satan today? Do you know what he's trying to do? Do you know how he's trying to tear you down? With complacency. With an eagerness to be complacent in your life and to know nothing of the things of God. This is a burden to you today. You have been burdened by getting up and coming to church. I know. I was burdened too. I felt like the hour didn't even count. With kids, their alarm clock's off so they just get up an hour earlier. And I feel like it didn't even count. It's a burden. But today is to be the day where we begin to be given that, that new excitement about the word of God. Sloth said, let me just sleep a little bit more. 
I actually said that to my wife this morning. So I said, just let me sleep a little bit more. In other words, I will start my Christian journey later on in life. Right now, i got to focus on my career. And my career takes me out of God's will. But I'll, I'll do it later. And then presumption said every tub must stand upon its own without the need of assistance. This person thinks he needs no help. He says, I don't need the church of God. I don't need you all putting your nose in my business. I don't need you all to tell me how to live my life. I don't need the body of Christ. I can get my faith on the boat. I can get my faith at home. I get my faith all by my lonesome. You are presuming. You are assuming falsely against what God has given to you as a gift, which is the brothers and sisters in the church. And so the three of them lay down again to sleep, and Christian decided it best to continue on his way. But it troubled Christian to think of the three men in such obvious danger. I want to talk this morning about the process of salvation. We don't think of salvation as a process. And we need to think about salvation as a process. We think about salvation according to the way from the beginning of the 1900s where revivalism started. That if you come down an aisle and you pray a prayer or you fill out a card, that that is it. It is only the beginning. There is more. If there is not more, then there is no hope that you have been saved. There must be the journey. There is the process. And scripture speaks about it. The first part of the process of salvation begins before the foundation of the world. Scripture tells us that God... To those whom he foreknew, he predestined. What does predestined mean? It means before you were born, God set out your destiny. Now, destiny is not a word that Christians necessarily use because destiny assumes against the personal creator or providential Lord. But nevertheless, the word predestined tells us that it is God who from before the foundation of the world was the one who elected you. By his grace alone to be saved. Now listen. Your salvation begins before you were even born. Stop and marinate on that for a moment. Appreciate that it is God who has worked all things together that you might be saved. I don't know why God chose me, but he did. I know he did because I serve him. I strive to serve him. He put me and Jim in Sandra's home and not in the home of an atheist or the home of a false teacher, or the home of a Muslim, or the home of a Buddhist, or the home of an apathetic person, he, or a religious person, but he put me in the home of men and women who led me to the cross of Christ. That was his design, working all things together. Thank you. My salvation, our salvation, belongs to the Lord from before the foundation of the world. No, listen to me, no, you didn't decide anything. You are wholly passive in the matter. But then, in the fullness of time, that predestined election of God by which he chose you, not according to anything he foresaw in you, but according to his own sovereign good will and pleasure, God at a moment brought about your new birth. 
And Jesus says it's like the wind. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. But you only feel it after it's hit you. What is it that God's got to do to break your heart this morning? So that you have only a heart for him. You don't know when it's coming. But when it comes, you are simply subdued by it. Tornado Alley is the center of our United States. The, the, the center of our, it comes from the Gulf of Mexico and the, the jet stream comes down and hot and warm uh, weather, air Warm from the ground, cold from the top, they mix and they cause a circle and it brings down this wind. And nobody knows when it's coming. They can just guess. They don't know where it's going to fall. They don't know where it's coming down. And by the time they figured it out, it's blown their house away. And the Bible tells us that salvation is like the wind. We don't know where it's coming from. We don't know where it's going. It comes upon us. That's where the new birth comes from. And so we call this effectually called because when God calls us, when it's effectual calling, I'm calling every one of you to repent of your sins and to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins this morning. You hear me, every one of you hear me, but the effectual call, the inward call of the Holy Spirit is what transforms your hearts and gets you off your rear end to love and follow God. That's why it's called effectual, because it actually does something. You ever taken a medicine that doesn't work? Nothing's worse. Oh, yeah, this is the one, and you take it, and your, your, your elbow still hurts, or whatever it is. That's not effectual. So, at the moment of time, notice the large bubble, that is to symbolize the beginning of your life, okay, or the beginning of all life, it can symbolize both, in which God effectually draws and calls and really regenerates the Christian in space and time at his given moment in that person's life. And at that moment, we are justified. Our sins fall off. They are forgiven. But notice in Bunyan's allegory that that is the beginning of the Christian life. You are adopted, that is, to be, uh, that is to say that now God calls you your children. Oh, I thought we were all God's children. No, you're not. You're either a child of Satan or you are a child of God, an adopted child of God. But you're only adopted into the family if you're justified by faith in Christ alone. Christ must be your brother. Notice the Christian in the, in the allegory. There, there's one road and there's walls on both sides. There's, you, you can't go anywhere else. You have to go through the cross. Jesus said in John 10 that everyone must come through him. He is the gate. If you don't come through him, you're not getting in. It's at this moment that we inherit the promises of God. Everything that God promises here are the real promises, not the ones that Joel Osteen tells you about. The real promises of God, they're mine. I get to hope. When I die, you can put my face on a t-shirt and put clouds in the background if you want and say he's in a better place because I've inherited that hope. Why? Because of my works? No, because I've put my faith in Christ Jesus. And yet in this city, we walk around with theology t-shirts that are full of false gospels. Oh, uh, yeah, little thug, he died while he was slinging rocks and... Put his face on a t-shirt, and now he's in heaven with angel wings. What? Like, what? Like, first off, that's the tackiest t-shirt. Yeah, listen, hey, listen, if y'all are offended by that, I'm from North Miami, so I know what time it is. Yo, listen, those t-shirts are so tacky. It's like little thug is standing there like this, and he's got angel wings. Like, what do you think happens? Like, I hope to God that we don't still have baggy pants and chevron t-shirts in heaven. Like, I hope we're going to have better clothes than that. But listen to me. When you die, 
Just because you die doesn't mean you go to heaven. But the promises of God are for the elect. They belong to us. Those who are saved by Christ and grace and faith in him alone. They don't belong to everybody. They only belong to his children. We also receive the gifts of the Spirit. Every one of you who is saved, who is really saved, who holds firm to the gospel and who bears fruit in keeping with repentance has also been given a gift of the Spirit. Oh, you mean like speaking in tongues? No, I don't. I mean like the real fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit in you. I I was watching this week. I don't know where this came from. Again, it's one of those YouTube binges. And I was watching these people who catch the Holy Ghost. First off, you don't catch the Holy Ghost. It's not like a dolphin swimming by. Oh, there goes the Holy Spirit. Woo! That's not the Holy Spirit. You don't catch the Holy Ghost. It's not a cold. And, And when they get this, whatever it is, and I'm not saying anything about what it is because I, I just don't know. But it, it looks so out of control. And it's nonsensical. But the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So how can that be the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love. Do you love? Oh, yeah, I love my red bottoms. Yeah, but do you love your enemy? It's joy. What is joy? Joy is the happiness and contentment that we have in whatever situation life throws at us. Peace. What is peace? It is that I no longer wrestle. The burden's fallen off. I know my sins are forgiven. We're going to take the Lord's Supper and be nourished spiritually this morning. No, it's not going to fill you up. You're going to still need to go to Publix and get a pub sub when you leave here. But this is for your spiritual nourishment. It's to remind you that you are saved by another's body and blood. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, faithfulness. All of those are the real fruit of the Spirit. It means that you're a certain type of tree if you bear that fruit. But then finally, we begin our sanctification. And the word sanctification in Scripture simply means this, that you've been set apart to be holy. I think you might be offended if I started kicking this over, right? Some of you would be real offended if I did that. Why? Because we consider this separated or sanctified for holiness. If we did a rock concert in this church and we were using all kinds of foul language and there was evil going on, you would be more offended than when it was done in a warehouse. Why? Because this is set apart. It is considered to be sanctified. It is considered to be a place of worship, a place of holiness. Now, there's nothing spiritually better about this building. I can tell you, I know the the nooks and crannies and the cracks and creaks about this building. And if there's anything this building is not, it ain't sanctified. But it's something we've decided to put it aside for one day a week and to come here and to praise God. And so we set it apart. It's like that special room in your house that every one of you have that nobody's allowed to go into. What is up with that room? My mother had one. She had a room. Nobody could go in. It had furniture in it. Nobody could go sit in it. Don't sit on that chair, son. It's not for sitting. It's for looking. That was my mother's chair. Did people sit in it back then? Like... You know what I'm talking about? In your homes, it probably has plastic all over it. Mmm, this is fun. So glad I'm sitting on plastic in 100 degree heat. <laughs> Set apart. Sanctified. 
holy. The word sanctify means holy. And while we worry about our couches and our churches, we need to be worrying about our lives. As Paul said, we are to set aside, in Romans 12, he says we are to, we are to worship God and we are to, our, our spiritual worship is by the renewing of our mind. We are to submit our bodies, our minds, everything about us to the Lord and to be sanctified in our persons. We're to be holy. But notice that this process begins at that moment, but it doesn't end. You see up there it says the word begins. So at the moment where we are effectually called, the moment where we are supposed to be renewed in the spirit is the moment where we begin to be set apart. And what we notice is that right after, shortly after we've come to Christ, all of a sudden we are now at the bottom of the hill. If I was a Christian, this wouldn't be happening. But sanctification is a process whereby the spiritually dead man has been born again. And as like an infant, he grows into a mature faith. The expectation of every one of you who has allegedly come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ is to actually grow up and be a spiritual adult. With your mind, with your mouth, with your eyes... You say, does that mean I have to be more legalistic and have to, be, have to have more laws? Absolutely not. It means that you see those laws that God has given you as an opportunity for the spirit to defeat the flesh. Yes, you can love your neighbor as yourself if you have the Holy Spirit. You say, but then why do I hate him? Because you still have a sinful disposition in you. It is a war of the flesh and the spirit, the old man and the new man. Unfortunately, that is the reality of this life after we come to Christ, that there is still the sin in us that stays until the day that we die and are glorified. You do not become perfect in reality at the moment of your salvation. You become perfect in God's courtroom by justification, but you begin the process of being holy. And it's a struggle. It's hard. I wish some of the pastors in America would start their Sunday morning just by saying, you don't want to be a Christian. Mm -mm. Before you come, have you really counted the cost? It's what Jesus did. Hey, 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 hold on. We see people coming. Yeah, come on, come on, come on. And Jesus said, hold on. Hold on. You know what you're signing up for? Yeah, if I become a Christian, I get a thousand whenever I give a hundred back. Oh, man, who wouldn't sign up for that? I'm down. And then it's only in our death where we become glorified, where the imperfect in all of its phases and all of its manifestations falls away and God gives us a new, perfect, conformed spirit and body. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 3. We're going to look at verses 20 through 31. If you look at the, be, the, the verse 20, it's the beginning or the end of a, of a thought. And then he's going to begin a new thought. But they are connected. And so verse 20 begins like this. It says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So what Paul is saying is that the law, which is not society's moral standard, but is actually God's moral standard. It's what's been written in this book right here. And if you are not conformed to that, you will not be justified. Now that's everyone. By the works of the law, no one is justified. Why? Because the law simply shows to us that we can't do it. We can't keep it. Oh, you, you've never murdered anybody. Have you hated your brother? Not necessarily your real brother, but have you hated your neighbor? Yeah, that person you don't like because they're a different skin color? Mm? Mm? 
you're guilty of murder. The whole law, you've broken the whole law. Because if you don't, if you fail in one part, you fail the whole thing. It's an all or nothing type deal. But now, the righteousness, remember what the word righteous means. It means right standing. It means I am, I am forgiven legally before God. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So now the righteousness of God. Luther thought that the righteousness of God was the thing that God required. But in reality, the main thing, the main thrust of this passage is that the righteousness of God is the thing that God gives. Where does he give it to you? He gives it to you by sending his son. In just a moment, he's going to call God the just and the justifier. So now the righteousness of God, if you want what God wants, he's giving it, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Note that the word law and prophets is capitalized. He's saying the Old Testament, the first, which is the Bible that Paul has at that time, is actually testifying that real salvation comes by faith and is not by keeping commands. I mean, just read the Bible. Just read the Old Testament. Did the Hebrews ever perfectly keep the law? Nope, nope, nope. There are some who are better than others at it, but no one keeps it perfectly. Paul just got through saying before he began this that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that both Jews and Gentiles, even though Jews were given the Bible, doesn't mean that they're saved by having the very words and oracles and promises of God. The only thing that saves them is faith in God and in his righteousness that he sends by Christ Jesus. What does he say? He says, bear witness to what? To what? The righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. You want to stand before God, you have to have faith in Christ Jesus. Not your good works. Oh, but my neighbor, he's a Buddhist, but he's so nice and he always brings me sugar whenever I need it. Not saved unless he has faith in Jesus Christ. Well, what about, you you're telling me that all those, there's, there's over a billion Muslims in the world, you're telling me they're not saved? Only if they don't have faith in Jesus Christ. What about my grandmother? Are you saying that my grandmother's not saved? I don't know your grandmother. All I know is that the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. If your grandmother died apart from faith in Jesus Christ, what does it have to do with what you've got to do right now? By the way, you don't know whether your grandmother was saved or not, and neither do I. It is God who judges, not me, not you. He says it's for all who believe. For there is no distinction. That means grandmas, nice people, Jews, Gentiles. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is the requirement that God demands. And are justified how? We're forgiven how? We stand right before God how? You are justified by his grace. What is grace? It's not simply unmerited favor, it's demerited favor. It is that we have done everything to not receive God's righteousness, and yet God has still forgiven us. The worst sins God forgives to those who have faith in Christ Jesus. Grace as a gift. It, did you earn it? No. Because it's a gift. Through what? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. The word propitiation is the same word in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In Exodus 25, 22, where the Bible tells us that God told the people of Israel, I will meet you here at the mercy seat. What is the mercy seat? It was the place where the blood of the lamb without blemish was placed. That's where God meets us. You want to talk with God? Oh, yeah, I talk with God. Are you coming to the mercy seat with the blood of the lamb without blemish, Christ Jesus? If you are not, you are not meeting with God. You are meeting with demons. 
The only way to meet with God is to come with the blood of his son. To come by faith. That Jesus Christ has procured for you an adoption to be the son by which you may enter, the son or daughter, by which you may enter the throne room of grace boldly. Because this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. To say that God must be just is to say that God always does what is right. But to say that God is the justifier is to say that God has shown great mercy. The difference between right and mercy is the difference between ought and good. The difference between what I ought to do is what I am required to do. But when I do things that I am not required to do that are good, like show mercy, I show that I am also the justifier, that I am righteous in what I do, that I have a, 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 prop, a, 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 a hungering to do what is right. And so the Bible tells us that God is the just one. He has to be just. But he is also the merciful one whose love endures forever. And so he is also the justifier. How? Where? At the cross. And it's why when Christian comes and looks at the cross, his burden falls away. Because justice is paid and mercy is given. Where? At the cross. At the cross. Where I first saw the light. And the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith. I received my sight, and now I'm happy all the day. Paul's proclaiming a wonderful thing. That by faith in Christ Jesus, your sins are forgiven. But that's not the end. Then what becomes of our boasting? I grew up in the church. I always come to church every Sunday and bring my Bible. And by the way, I wear a suit and a tie. Look at my canary yellow suit that I bought with my yellow gator skin shoes that are fake. I remember, man, when I, you know, Easter would come around, and I remember one year I tried one of those, you know, where you go and buy the Easter suit, and it's either like purple or canary yellow, and you're walking with a cane and a top hat, and it just didn't work for me. I won't explain why, but it didn't. It's excluded. You can't boast. It doesn't matter how many times you come to church or that your grandmother was saved or that you did a good deed. It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. It's excluded by the law of faith. Because if you have faith in Christ, you not only give away all your sins, but you also must leave at the cross all of your self-righteousness. All of the good deeds. I gave money to the homeless. Leave it at the cross. Because if you want to stand before God. You can either give to God. The money that you gave to the homeless. Or you can give to God the work of his son. And he's only going to take one of those. As acceptance for eternity. And that is the work of his son. For we hold that one is justified, that is, it's the end, you're forgiven, apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Let me give you something even worse. You're not a Jew. So you didn't get the original covenant. The only way you are a Jew, which is God's chosen people, is a Jew by faith. You must be a child of Abraham to be a child of the covenant. Yes, Ishmael had a blessing as well. But he did not receive the covenant blessing that came by being a child of Abraham. And the only way you come into the covenant where you enjoy that eternal relationship where all of God's promises are yes and amen is by faith in Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter if you're a Jew. You can wear yarmulke. By the way, I was in a neighborhood yesterday 
and there were a bunch of boys running around with yarmulkes. Guess what? They cuss just like everybody who doesn't wear yarmulkes. Uh, can I tell you something? I've been jogging in this neighborhood for years, never been bothered. The only thing that ever bothers me is the dogs that you guys don't chain up. But I've been fine. I went jogging in a nice, nice neighborhood. And I'm telling you, I was afraid. I don't care how nice the homes are or how many caps you put on your head or the fact that you don't drive and you walk on the Sabbath. None of that makes you better than me. You know what makes me saved and you lost is faith. That's what Paul says. You say, this is not politically correct. I don't care. Fire me. Luther said, if I had a thousand heads, I'd rather have all thousand of them lopped off than to give in on my gospel. Do we then, here's, here's the word. And this is where I wanted to get you this morning. Do we then, now that all of our sins have fallen away and we've been forgiven, do we then overthrow the law by faith? In other words, because all my sins have forgiven, can I live however I want to live? Since I was saved, can... I sneak away from the church and from God's people and from the righteousness that he requires and never, ever be a part of God's covenant community again and fade into the darkness of this life? Paul says, can we, because we're saved, because we're forgiven, does that mean I don't have to do anything? I don't have to have any works at all? He's taking care of the justification. That for the matters of justification, faith saves us. But by this justification, what do we do? Now what do we do? Paul says, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law of God. The title of this morning's sermon was, You are justified to serve Christ freely. The beginning of the Christian life is the moment where your burden falls away, but you still must walk the path of salvation. You're going to meet sloth, and sloth is going to come into your life where you get lazy with your spiritual walk with Christ, or presumption, or simpleness. You know what simpleness looks like? Mom, tell me, how do we know that God exists? Because we believe it. Yeah, but what about evolution? Well, because we believe it. That's simpleness. We have to know why we believe. And presume only on the cross. Jesus said to us this. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, he called. Some of you this morning feel the burden of your sin. I don't know how long you've been on your Christian journey, but you've been walking with a burden on your back. You've tried to leave behind the drunken nights, the party nights, the sexual immorality, the stealing and the thievery. You've tried to leave all that behind, but you still feel the burden. You still don't understand how a sinner like you could be forgiven. Because after all, you've done the worst thing. You're a criminal. And Jesus calls you this morning tenderly. And here's his call. Come unto me, all ye that labor. Stop trying to convince yourself and the rest of the world that you are good enough. You know you're not. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart.
and you will find rest for your souls. Today, if you want to be justified and to stand forgiven and to begin the Christian life burdenless, trust only on the name of Jesus Christ. And he will give you rest. And then, begin with the rest of us to walk the road of salvation until death. And all of the promises of God are realized in glorification. Father, thank you for the promises you've given us. Thank you for my brothers and sisters which you've given me. Who help me on this road to salvation. Not to earn your salvation. Because it's already earned. I'm already on the way. And yet you've given me my brothers and sisters. This very church. To help me. And to remind me. And to help me. And push me on. Father right now. There is someone in here. Who needs the burden of their sins. To fall off their back. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would convict that heart to give up their works, to give up all of their good deeds, and to give up all of their sins as anything that either achieves or accomplishes their salvation or as anything that prevents their salvation and to begin the Christian life by faith. Holy Spirit, come into them. Produce what only you can produce, new life and the fruit of the Spirit. And in those today who have received Jesus and who are going to follow Jesus, give them that new heart of flesh, a heart that has love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Let that be our church. Thank you for salvation in Christ alone. Help us now to walk the road of salvation.